this episode, we discuss commander uniforms, the importance of our degrees, rites of passage in Freemasonry, the importance of communication, focusing on our existing members, the entered apprentice degree as a filter, apathy in Freemasonry, or addressing problems head on, as well as attracting and retaining members. This is Masonic Improvement, a podcast, YouTube channel, and blog dedicated to taking good lodges and making them better. I am your host, Justin Jones. First and foremost, I want to give a big shout out to Brother Francisco Garcia, past master of Hidalgo 1036, for that masterpiece of introduction music that he composed for me. If you enjoyed it, be sure to check out his SoundCloud as well as his YouTube channel and show him your support. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to remind everybody that the thoughts and views expressed by myself and my guest do not reflect the stance or opinions of any lodge or grand lodge. That said, I have Joshua Finley on the show today. Joshua Finley, everybody. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing very well. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, come have a conversation with me about Freemasonry. Let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Josh. So I think it's pretty safe to call me a fairly new Mason. Um, I've been a Mason for about five years, but if you were to tell me that I had jumped in, that would be a huge understatement. I dove in head first and very early on fell in love with the ritual of the lodge, um, the York Rite, which I spent a lot of time in, and that constant search for more and more light. So uh, currently, I'm, I'm a senior deacon of Victory Lodge number 1160. I was initiated and passed, passed and raised there. I have a plural membership with Perfect Union number 10. I'm a noble at Alsafar Shrine, member of the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite of Valley of San Antonio, and Holotus Chapter and Council, Brownwood Commandery, and Holotus AMD number 549, serving in office in uh, pretty much every body of the York Rite. Said you're in commandery, is that right? I am Brownwood number 22. How do you feel about the uniforms? So I've got a, a at Victory Lodge, a, a very close brother, and he's in another commandery. We wear um, the mantles with caps. And there's a look about those that I think are really cool. Uh, they they seem to work. And I going into commandery, I wasn't really sure before I went through the orders, what that specific commandery's regalia was. Now, in my buddy's commandery, they wear the, you know, the chapelles, uh, chapeaus, and um, the dress blues. So I think they're both cool. I think they both have a lot of meaning. But um, it's interesting to me that different commanderies have different regulations. I don't see anything uh, specific to that. And I think in certain circumstance, depending on what your commander is doing, they will change uniforms. Like Grand Lodge, for example, if you see how the uh, the commander does the presentation up there, they're all dressed blues, uh, very sharp. It almost feels to me that, granted, I, I'm in commander as well, but my my experience with it has been somewhat limited to just a few commanderies. But uh, the ones I have seen are are struggling, and it, it just seems to me like if you're if your commander is struggling, you have a hard enough time, 
getting people to meet. You probably need to look at maybe what you're doing and change it. And I've just never been, and I know there's other people like that feel the same way, but I've never really been a huge fan of the, like the, like the chapeau uniform, you know, the, the, the black and everything. And it was just kind of off putting, but what I'm getting at, I suppose, is if you, if, if a commandery is dying, if it's losing members, you would think they would try something new, you know, and it might be something as simple as, as changing up the uniform or something, but it's sad to see, because I think commandries, I think it's great. Don't get me wrong. And I think the order of the temple is probably the most beautiful degree I've ever seen in Freemasonry. I love the order of the temple and I would hate to see that gone or right, or just put to the wayside, but for a commander just to, to, to stick to their guns all the way till they turn in the charter. It's sad because you, you, you lose something out of, out of the Masonic experience that you have to travel further to find. I would agree with you. Order of the temple is an amazing order, amazing degree. Uh, I would say between that and the Royal Arch degree, uh, those two would be the most uh, profound to me. Um, someone asked me the other day, and it was it was one of those questions where they said, what's your favorite degree from Blue Lodge and the appended bodies? And I said, I, I don't think I have a favorite degree. They're all my favorite, but they certainly have characteristics and components to them that are kind of my favorite part if that makes sense. And uh, yeah, the order of the temple to me, it's a very vivid memory Mm -hmm. and being excellent prelate of that commandery and serving that role. I had my work cut out for me. Every degree is there for a reason, particularly in blue lodge. And a lot of people really like the master's degree for reasons that are pretty obvious, I think, but they're, they're all equally important. Yes. And personally, like I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the fellow craft. I think it teaches a lot of the, the context, a lot of the content that is really important for us to grow. Well, and, and as far as Blue Lodge goes, uh, going back to what I was saying about having a component that stands out to me, you know, look at the EA degree and probably the most profound thing to me about the EA degree is that that candidate enters a mister and leaves a brother. Okay, if you look at the fellow craft, the educational aspect of that degree uh, makes it stand out. It's a lot of information very quickly, uh, but if you if you do the lecture properly, uh, the educational aspect of that should really affect the candidate. And of course, the master's degree is kind of the, I don't want to say reveal, but that is the most dramatic to me of the Blue Lodge degrees. I, I think Absolutely. why I like, York writes so much and I participate in it as much as I do is I find the, the lessons very closely intertwined and very familiar with the Blue Lodge. It's kind of, you know, it's like, oh man, I got to take my shoes off again. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this before. I, I feel like, you know, this is familiar, but uh, yeah, that Royal Arch degree is phenomenal. Yes. Uh, if done well, it is very cool. And I have a lot of fun with the uh, Mark Master degree as well. Yeah, that one has some fun parts. It, part of the big sell for Yorkrat when I'm talking to Master Masons is that it's actually a continuation, really, of the right. Master's degree, uh, and, you know, like you said. And I think the people that are kind of esoterically minded or really just, just want to see kind of where it goes from there. It's very appealing to them. And 
I think if done right, you know, everything in Freemasonry, if it's not done right, it loses the impact. But I think the chapter and council's degrees, if done right, they can be very impactful as well. Well, and we, we kind of forget that, uh, you know, those degrees are about the candidate. We are supposed to give him the most vivid experience to remember. And I was very fortunate when I received uh, all of my degrees. They, I, I believe they were done correctly with passion. And to me, as the candidate going through those degrees, it said a lot about those who were conferring the degree. They, they worked really hard. And early on, you know, that was kind of where my passion was headed. Said, I want to do that now. I, I want to, I'm inspired. I want to do the best I can to give that candidate the best experience possible. So I, I was very lucky. I, I remember my degrees very well. And I, I'm proud to say that my lodge and my chapter and council did a phenomenal job. That's awesome. I think something that we often forget, you know, you point out it's the candidate tonight. And yeah, we, we kind of let our ego get in the way sometimes, but back sure. to the point that it being the candidate's night, which is also why I'm not in huge favor of doing at least the Blue Lodge degrees, you know, just let that be one person's night, you know, don't, don't do like two or three or something like that. But that's another conversation. What I wanted to really point out, the three primary degrees have the potential to create a huge impact on a person. But what, we're, what, what they are at their core is these are rites of passage. Uh, I mean, textbook definition of rites of passage. Sure. And, but the thing about a rite of passage is if you, if you shortcut it or if you don't take it seriously or if, you, if it's not delivered properly, you're going to either have no impact at all or even worse, you're going to totally turn someone off to any, any further progress because it's going to come across as a joke. Some lodges do. They treat it like something serious, and it, and it should be. It should be a serious and solemn occasion, and others don't take it seriously, and it shows, and unfortunately, you don't retain people that way. Well, and, and I particularly take a lot of pride in doing the lectures properly, and, you know, again, going back to my own experience, uh, the brothers who did my lectures for me in the degrees inspired me. I was in awe of the way that they delivered those lectures. And I, I thought to myself, that's it. You know, that's, that's what I would like to do. I, I want to learn that. I want to give the same experience to a candidate. And I think that was a, a, a driving force for sure. The lectures, the degrees, even the questions and answers, each, each of these things by themselves, really in taken in just context of the normal human experience, they're almost like a Herculean task. You know, the, the amount of stuff that you actually memorize and then repeat, uh, in some cases verbatim, you know, flawlessly, it's, it's mind-blowing, really. And you have some people that, you know, they can confer the entire degree and then turn around and give the entire lecture. And I have seen before, as, as I'm sure you have, candidates sitting there. And, I mean, here you go off into a 10-minute lecture off you know from memory and their jaws just drop you know right. it, it blows them away and it's it's very satisfying though i have also uh, learned some of the lectures and i hear that you give a pretty good walking fellowcraft degree lecture i've heard that from time to time <laughs> I've, as a matter of fact i i was just at valley high lodge 
helping with a fellow craft and that was what was asked of me um, that's you know the controversial the controversial lecture should it be done should it not be done that way and really there's there's two camps on it mm-hmm. and my my approach to that is I will always go to the lodge leadership from the worshipful master down and ask how they would like it to be done because I'm I'm prepared to do it either way mm-hmm. but you know when you talk to members of the committee on work and you see why it's divided you kind of have to appreciate that there there's two very good uh thoughts on it and schools on it yeah so there are times when when yes i've been asked to do uh in particular the fellow craft lecture and i've said okay how would you like this done this is you know your candidate uh, i'm just a guest mm-hmm. they said just do it from the east and there's other times where they say please by all means um do that walking lecture and it's it's fascinating that at the end of it and when we are all said and done people will approach you and say you know i never <laughs> i never really thought of it that way and i i've heard it but seeing it done that way has changed my my outlook on it and that was really cool i i i've just never seen that before and it it made a lot of sense and to add to that the candidate at his core gets a different experience. He does, doesn't he? So I think that's something that we should reflect on too, going back to this is his night and it's our responsibility and it's our duty to make it as profound as possible. Yes. And we should take a lot of pride in that. It's okay to be proud when you deliver good ritual. I I bring it up. First of all, because I find it all very interesting, but I have also given the walking lecture on a few occasions. So for one, I'd really just like to see one of yours and compare notes. My experience has been the same as what you're describing. Really, the reaction to a fellow craft lecture from the East is is really the same reaction you'd see to like an EA from the East or a master's from the East. But actually having walked brothers through it's a lot more intimate experience. It really raises the bar. It really puts more focus on the candidate. I've seen different reactions, you know, in brothers that have never seen a fellow craft, right? This is their degree, but they would come and say how much they enjoyed that and how much they feel it made a bigger impact than say like the intern apprentice degree or something like that. And like you say as well, you'll all, I've also seen brothers, you know, from the sidelines that you think might be a little resistant to it. But I think in this case, seeing is believing. It's it's a it's a change, quote unquote, in Freemasonry. So they're not necessarily in, on board with it, but then when they actually see it, you know, it's like a light bulb kind of flicks on, and, and they can see that this is actually going to make a greater impact on the candidate because it's a lot. It's just you and him at that point. You know, it's not. It kind of takes the whole lodge room out of the out of the equation. It's just you and him at that point having a a one on one conversation as you move through the lodge room, and I think that's powerful. Absolutely. And like I said, I get the controversy, but, um, you know, nothing is more dangerous than the phrase and mindset of it's always been done this way. Absolutely. That is a a terminal statement in a lot of cases. If you look historically, you you could tell that Freemasonry has changed a lot since its original roots. And so there was a, a point in time where there wasn't such a apprehension about change. You know, we just adapted as we needed to. And it really changed this, this fear to change fear almost feels like one of those innovations we warn against. 
and that we're so resistant now because of, of really you know one one-off sentence in one of the degrees that we're you know we we don't want to do anything innovative anymore we don't want to do anything that adapts us and we it actually kind of puts us behind uh, as far as how the times are and where things are going right and i mean the fundamentals are there and the lessons are there and the option of interpretation is there you know i'm not suggesting we we rewrite the rituals uh, by any stretch but looking at at perhaps what other jurisdictions do or feeding off of someone else's ideas in application to how you might conduct those degrees or when to induct to conduct those degrees or, or things that I think need to be talked about. Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm also not suggesting anything drastic, like changing the, the wording of the ritual or anything right. like that, but it's almost like a scientific approach. You know, you, it's trial and error. You allow lodges the freedom to, to do a little bit of experimentation. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, well, then they, they shouldn't keep doing it. But we, we have to allow ourselves to have that, that freedom because really we're at that point and we have this conversation all the time, you know, why is Freemasonry in the state it is, why are laws just shrinking? And yes, 10 people, you're going to get 10 answers. But really at the end of the day, we're not trying anything new. I mean, small things here in pockets, but we're not, we're not allowing ourselves to have the flexibility to adapt and, and really uh, a Fort Worth Lodge is going to have a different situation than a like a Waco Lodge and so we have to have a certain degree of flexibility in my opinion. Sure. So what really got you into the fraternity? I know we, we talked a little bit about it but let's just kind of take a deep dive. Sure so um, I actually did a video on my This Is Finn page not too long ago and it, it was just to answer some questions. People have asked me that who are uh, both brothers and, and non-brothers. And I think to really answer that, you have to look at three specific things in my life, but you'll find they, they kind of intertwined and folded into each other. Um, my grandfather, whom I've never got a chance to meet, he passed away when my dad was 13, which is kind of strange because my mother passed away when I was 13. So me and my father always had like a kind of that strange connection about losing a parent very early on. But my grandfather is almost a legend, is a legend in my family. He was spoken about in high regard. Uh, He was very active in his community, very active in masonry. You know, to quote my dad, it was very important to him. He remembers a couple times a month. Grandfather would put a suit on, grab his Masonic briefcase, and he'd be gone for the evening. My dad was always really impressed, especially when he died, uh, at how the brothers of the lodge came to check on the family. My aunt, my grandmother, my father, they felt taken care of by that lodge, whom his father had spent so much time and energy in service to. So Longing for a connection to my grandfather was one factor because I'd heard about masonry pretty much the entire time I was growing up. If we passed, for example, a a Masonic Lodge in town somewhere, my dad would always say, you know, 
dad did this and the lodge did they would kind of cause him to reflect. So I always wanted a connection to my grandfather. As a matter of fact, it, it sounds strange when I tell this to some people, but the night I was initiated, when I got my EA degree, I remember it vividly. It was, it was raining. It was, it was cool out. Um, it was dark. And when the degree was over, I had that, uh, that light bulb go off in my head. And I thought, this is it. You know, we talk about, hey, great men have gone through what you're about to go through. You know, Washington, Mozart, Davy Crockett, they've all shared this experience. And that's true. And that's cool to reflect on. But for me, it was my grandfather. And I, I felt that connection almost immediately. I thought, this is it. This is that connection that I was looking for. And I found it. And the more I, I continued in the fraternity, the more I had that connection. So that we share something despite never getting a chance to meet in this life. So that's that's one reason. There's the other something, part of that is there's something powerful. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but sure. There's something powerful about knowing that you had the same experience. It took the same obligation, said the same words as someone dear to you that you never have met. Very true. Yeah, it, it's very real. And I, I felt it for sure. Um, another part of joining was uh, you have to understand, as I got older, I was getting settled into my life. I, I was really genuinely happy of, about where I was professionally. Um, things were great at home. Things were great despite going through a semi-nasty divorce. Uh, I had, you know, met another girl and things were great and life felt good. It felt right. Like it was the right time to commit to something. But I started noticing that people I was building relationships with professionally and, and personally all had that common denominator. It was to me a sign. It wasn't just a coincidence, but I started to meet people that I held in very high regard, respected tremendously, and admired. It was something about the way they walked, they talked, how they treated me, how I observed them treat other people, and they were all Masons. It was just something that I noticed. And so finally, I approached one of them and I said, uh, you know, hey, I, I wanted to talk to you about your, your ring. And he asked me something very, <laughs> very cryptic that I didn't understand at the time, but now I understand. And I said, well, it's something I've really thought about doing. And he said, all right, I'm going to talk to our mutual friend, uh, another brother. We're going we're gonna to talk, and then I'll have him call you. And it was funny. I, a couple nights later, I get a phone call, and it's my other friend. And he says, you know, we were talking, and it's about time you asked. And they seemed very happy that I was, I was going that direction. And from there on, it was the process. The third and kind of last but not least part of that answer is I suppose going back to my life at the time, I think you have to be at a certain place in your life, uh, a, a comfort level, if you will, to, to join masonry and do it right. You know, since I was feeling that, I, I guess I longed for 
fraternal bond. I wanted to be part of something greater than myself. I wanted to give back. I realized I could. And if I had the power to do something noble and certainly being around uh, these other friends of mine and people I worked with that were Masons was inspirational. But um, unfortunately, I don't think that's very common anymore. But I, I definitely felt the drive. Uh, the more I sort of studied what Masonry was and the various aspects of Masonry, I went, you know what, that's, that's it. That's the thing. That's, that's what I want to do. And um, dove in, I mean, really dove in and became quite honestly, uh, obsessed. I, I was obsessed with learning the work. I was obsessed with doing it well, um, performing the best I could participating in ritual. And it's, it's just been an absolutely phenomenal experience. I don't know where I would be without it today. And I know a lot of people say that, but I, I truly mean it. I don't know. I don't want to know where I'd be without it. I had to change so much to, to be who I am today. And, and Freemasonry is what put me on that track. And a lot of that was just, just learning to work, getting comfortable, standing up in front of people and, 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 and talking and things like that. And so that, that really can't be stressed enough about what a personal journey that puts you on. Once you start, you know, deep diving, be it, you know, working on the ritual, doing education, and, you know, going through the chairs, these all put you outside of your comfort zone and make you a better person. Well, I've heard it described this way too. And, and I kind of, I, I kind of like this. It, it's, if you have a moral compass, masonry is the map. And that really, you know, strikes home with me. Yeah, that's um, I mean, honestly, the, the, the memorization and ritual work is one aspect of it. It's unfortunately, I think one of our weaknesses is I think we, we put a lot of emphasis on here, memorize this and recite it mm -hmm. as opposed to let's explain what that means, right? Let's actually dive into what that means and what is the value? What is the lesson and how do you apply that to your life? But yeah. Um, that's sort of the way that I've tried to look at it is in, in two aspects, you know, learning it is great, performing it is great, but what does it mean? Why are we doing it? How do I take those lessons as an application to everyday life? And like I said, it's been an amazing journey. I, I have had a, a really good time and it's, it's changed me tremendously. Unfortunately, we do what you're describing uh, too often, particularly when we're doing the questions and answers, you know, the, the catechisms or whatever you want to call right. them. We, we just skim right through them. At that point, it's just about memorization. It's not about integrating it into your, into yourself. And that really defeats the whole purpose of the entirety of the degree. You know, there's a reason we're supposed to learn these things. And there's a, there's a, a process behind it. If you're the same guy you are when you take the master's degree as you were when you take the EA, something's lost along the way. You know, we've, we've done that candidate a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was very fortunate um, when I was coming up through the degrees to have instructors and mentors who took the time to explain to me what I was actually learning. You know, hey, you, you, got this down right and you, you learned this kind of strange language in a way uh have you ever thought about what this actually means do you remember this and 
I think if Freemasonry is going to survive, and I, I believe it will, I think we're going to be just fine. But a way we can help guarantee that is explaining to that candidate the power of what those lessons are. This wasn't just a play. This wasn't just a, you know, a bunch of brothers reciting stuff. We're telling you to learn something. There's power in them and tools. And I can just tell you from my own experience, that was very powerful to me. I love it. How did the reality of Freemasonry compare with your expectations? You said you did quite a bit of research before you went in. Is that right? I did, mainly because of my grandfather, uh, like I was saying. Um, you know, I heard Brother West say it, and he's absolutely right. You know, you can have these expectations. You can build something up in your mind, but you're just never going to understand until you do it. Um, practically speaking, I mean, my expectations were exceeded tremendously. I fell in love. and realized there was something very meaningful about the time that I became a Mason and where I thought it was going to take me. But uh, like anything else, you know, you can, you can read all the books and watch all the documentaries and do all the homework you want, but it is impossible to convey what we know to someone who hasn't done it. And that in itself is one of the marvels of masonry. I think that's the real mystery right there. You know, uh, a secret can be conveyed. I mean, the secrets are out there, right? You can Google it. The secrets are there. But a mystery, that's a lesson that there's just no words for. You mentioned something about the time that you became a mason. What do you mean by that? I was in my 30s when I joined. And um, again, I was going through the process of, of a divorce. Uh, kind of relocating, um, you know, work was good. Uh, financially, I was stable. My goals were set and my long-term goals were approaching, being, uh, you know, dealt with, executed. My immediate goals were getting done. I was very comfortable where I was in life. And up until that point, honestly, in some ways, I think I was really lost not being happy in a marriage, uh, being kind of lonely. At the same time, creating relationships through my profession, building those relationships, uh, those things were going on and they were very real to me. But I truly believe that some brothers join when they shouldn't and other brothers join when they should have earlier. <laughs> I mean, I've seen, you know, 22 year olds initiated. I've seen 62 year olds initiated. I think it's really up to the individual and how he is established in his life. I mean, again, I was uh, what, 38, 39 when I was initiated. I regret that I wasn't thinking about it at 28 or 22, but when I reflect on my life and all the places I've gone and all the things I've done and the other journeys I've taken, I honestly believe that I joined at the appropriate time for me. And that gives me a lot of peace 
knowing that I did the right thing at the right time. And I can look myself in the mirror and honestly say that. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it was the right time for you, given all the zeal you jumped into the fraternity with and all the good that I hear you're doing down there. Well, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a hypocrite. I, I did what I tell newly raised masters not to do. <laughs> uh, the day someone is raised, we all know there's going to be a, a little bit of uh, solicitation, maybe. Brothers approaching him, saying, hey, you know anything about the shrine? Hey, you know anything about <laughs> Scottish Rite Masonry? And that's okay. Uh, I waited a little bit. Uh, the first body I joined was the Scottish Rite. Uh, had a great time. I love what they do. I love what they represent. We have leadership right now in the San Antonio Valley that I believe are geniuses. I mean, these guys are insanely great at what they're teaching and how they're teaching it. Uh, the continued education classes they have are phenomenal. And I think it's in good hands. It wasn't long after that I went through the chapter and council and then eventually the commandery. And I, with, without saying I had a favorite, I just liked the York Rite a little better. It just felt like more Blue Lodge to me, where the Scottish Rite is very unique in many aspects. So, yeah, I entered into office very quickly in, in the York Rite bodies. Uh, later was invited into the AMD, which is one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, the AMD council is amazing, but it's it's kind of hard to explain uh, to brothers who are not members or or companions that are not members. I find when I try, <laughs> I'm usually passing the ball to somebody else and saying, hey, you explain how this works. Um, because there's so much involved. I, I kind of chalk it up to don't come to us and ask to join. We will select people who we believe are worthy of being on this council. You have to go above and beyond to even get recognized. And even if you're recognized, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you membership. So it's not elitist. It's not secular. It's not snobby. It is made up, at least my council is made up of the greatest hits of the York Rite. They are truly the most active and dedicated companions I've seen. I absolutely love it. Uh, when it's an AMD night, I'm, I'm ready to go. And I have yet to really have a disappointing experience. What are the strengths and weaknesses of our fraternity? That's a great question. I kind of think of myself as an optimist. And when I look at strengths and weaknesses in any organization or any regard, hell, life in general, I always try to look at it as your strengths could use improving and your weaknesses aren't complete destruction. They, they might have something about them that you can pull one good thing out of. It's kind of like bad leadership, okay? If you're in a position in life where the people in charge are doing a terrible job and it's affecting everybody else and you have no way to change it, there is still one positive you can pull out of that situation. 
what you're doing is getting a first class lesson on how not to be. Should you assume that role? Should you be put into that position? If you look at it that way, they're telling you, hey, don't do this. Don't, don't do as I've done. In a, in a more literal sense, uh, some things that bother me are communication. I think one of our weaknesses is communi uh, communication. Now, with the DCOs and knowing a lot of them down here, I, I happen to be very close to many of the, the brothers with that title. They have just absolutely blown my mind in how good a job they are doing and taking that very seriously. You know, they, they have figured out something like Facebook or social media, which a lot of times can be used for wrong, and they've figured out how to harness it and wield it for good. But I can't tell you how many times I've, I was told, hey, we need some help with this degree <laughs> tomorrow. We've known about it for a month, but we're, we're going to, you know, put it out there tonight and, and hope we have a degree team tomorrow. Things like that generally bother me. Understandably um, so. But it's, it doesn't sound like it's that uncommon. The only thing worse than that is if they ask you if you can fulfill a role and you prepare for it. And then you get sure. there and you find out two or three other people have been asked to do it and they're all there. So all, all your, all your practice, you know, it could go out the window. Right. And again, you know, we have communications officers that take it very seriously and they do a tremendous job and they have harnessed social media correctly. We can use this for good. And it, that appears to, to be for me, one of those, uh, you know, we have a weakness, but there's a strength within within it. And that's cool to see. You know, the membership thing is kind of the hot button. <clears throat> and I really look at it two different ways. And again, strength and weakness. I'm a firm believer that we should be focusing on current membership. If you've got 200 dues-paying members of your lodge, and past masters and endowed members, whatever the case is. Can you imagine if they all showed up? We seem to be super focused on new membership. That seems to be, which is a good thing to be aware of. That's a good thing to strive for. But, you know, I used to play and, and coach soccer, and I would always tell the players it doesn't matter how many goals you score if you can't defend. And I kind of look at it the same way, you know, new memberships, great. We should be doing our, our due diligence, but what about the guys that haven't been here? Why are they not here? They're past masters or, you know, they're members that we just haven't seen in a long time. Has anybody reached out to these guys? A simple phone call, know, email them. Um, so the membership thing, again, strength, and weaknesses. We're very good at some things and very lacking with other things. I think that's very powerful, particularly you can't, it doesn't matter how many times you score if you can't defend. And absolutely, it really doesn't matter how many new people you bring into the lodge if you're losing just as many, if not more. So let me ask you this. And I, I completely agree. And I think I touched on this on, in my last interview. I think the one with Jason West, I, I touched on this in the wrap up. I completely agree we should focus on the existing members. After all, they're who we have an obligation to. 
correct? Why, why do you think it is that we don't reach out to them or we don't worry about retaining them? Sure. I think there's a sense of perhaps that individual has made up their mind. Uh, perhaps it's, well, if he could be here, he would be here. I think there's a lack of, in a lot of ways, validation and a little bit of apprehension. Like, hey, you know, Justin's not showing up to meetings. He probably has a reason. You know, should I call him and bother him about it? I mean, it is a volunteer organization. That's one of the great things about it is we're there because we want to be. We're not giving things away, right? You have to earn everything in masonry through work. And while that's part of the beauty of it, I think it's kind of uh, strange to see that happening as frequently as it does. I think a lot gets lost in the sauce. Um, I know like Lotus Lodge has a, have you seen them list where they'll put the brother's name and phone number and allow people to reach out to them. And I think either they're kind of under the assumption that people are reaching out and that brother, companion, whatever, has something going on that prohibits them from attending and they just sort of leave it alone. That's, that's, it's hard to explain, but I think that's part of it. I don't think it's discussed. I don't think it's burning bridges or uh, perhaps wronging those brothers. I think they just have their own reasons, uh, probably personal. Someone made a great point the other day about our, our elderly brothers, right? Well, they get to a point where, you know, like I know my father can't see very well, so he doesn't drive at night. Most of our lodges meet at night. Uh, if it's a physical issue and they, they don't even drive, you know, who's, who's going to pick them up and bring them to lodge? It, it could be that benign, but at the same time, um, I think it's just the presumption that if they wanted to be there, they would be there. And that's where we're wrong. I would like to hear it from the horse's mouth say, hey, buddy, you haven't been to lodge in, you know, a year. Did something happen? Or perhaps we knew something happened, but now we're just waiting for you to get back to us and no one's really following up. Um, on that note, I do make a valiant effort to do that within my, my lodges. We keep a very clear list of who hasn't been there, who hasn't been showing up and attending. And I see it as two different lists. I see the dues paying members and I see those new initiates who are coming in the door. It's frustrating, but I can't tell you how many EAs we have made who never come back for whatever reason. And, and I'm sure there's a variety of reasons. But that bothers me. Understandably. Yeah, there's definitely, and I've seen it as well, the, the retention of EAs is pretty low. Um, it could be higher in some lodges, right? But you do lose a lot of EAs, you know, shortly after they put in the work. I've heard some weird numbers. I, I saw something on, on uh, one of the Facebook groups that said like 30-something percent of EAs will make it to Master Mason or something like that. Um, it's, it's a pretty shocking number, and I, I can't validate that. But I've also seen many times, and I, I think it's true, I am a believer, the EA degree is another filter, right? Like if he gets past the petition, if he gets past the committee, if he gets past the ballot, 
Now he's presented after that degree with, we expect something from you. This is an organization where you have to earn your way through it. We are, if you thought you were paying some money and here's some pens and here's some rings and go out and do good things, you were wrong. And I truly believe that indeed the EA is a filter. It's going to, it's going to be something that confronts that new candidate, that new EA. And he's going to go, oh my gosh, they expect me to work. They want me to do stuff. Um, no, I'm, this isn't for me. So that's a good thing. That was actually going to be my next question because I've heard that as well. And it's when you look at the content of the EA without going into a huge, you know, we don't want to go into detail, obviously. You can't move forward until you kind of let go of what's holding you down right now. And I really feel as though that's, that's a huge purpose for the integrated apprentice degree is, first of all, to, to prepare you for further degrees, but also to serve as that filter. You know, it's, you talk about Herculean, Herculean memorization, uh, the internet apprentice, you know, sure. I mean, to, to us, it probably doesn't seem like it because we've been doing it for so long, but it's a lot. And especially when you compare it to the other degrees, which don't have as much memorization, the, the internet apprentice is a pretty steep cliff you have to overcome to really progress. It definitely challenges your desire to be there at times. It definitely is one of those things that make you stop and think like, wow, this is, this is a lot of work. But I know in my case, like I said, you know, I, I was obsessed. I, I, I approach it as I can do this. I want to do this. I'm going to do this. And um, yeah, it's nothing was like it. I, I think the only thing that to me was, was ultimately harder was the prelate's position in order of the temple. I, I had, I think, like two months, two months to learn and, and memorize that position. And the commander at the time said, do you, do you think you can do this? And I, I kind of went, sure, yeah, I like a challenge, and took it on. But I, I'm glad I did. And I remember as I was learning the prelate position, I remember thinking, yeah, this, I don't think I've had to do something like this since my EA degree, but if I was able to do that, I have the confidence that I can do, uh, I can do whatever they throw at me. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. Absolutely. And what I tell my EAs and the newer brothers that are struggling with, uh, with their work, quality over quantity, learn what you're learning well, take your time learn it well, you will be that much more confident. And if, if I could do it, <laughs> anybody could do it. You know, I'm nothing special. So it's something I try to pass on and say, hey, it's all about mindset. It's all about mindset. It's, it's a conscious decision that you have to make. And it's amazing that you will prove to yourself through your mind that you can do more than you thought was possible. Absolutely. You know, there's another saying that it's a, it's a marathon and not a race. And this is why, uh, this is one of the reasons I'm not such a huge fan of people going through degrees on the same night. And you have probably yeah. seen this as well. If you have like 200 apprentices and they get the degrees on the same night. And so you're sitting down with them and you're trying to teach them the work. And the other guy, he's just, he's just learning it. Boom, boom, boom. And the other guy's struggling. It's human nature. He's going to compare himself to, this other person and he's going to feel as though maybe he's not worthy or maybe 
he's being judged because he's not moving as quickly. And we're, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, but we, we really have to emphasize, you know, at the end of the day, this guy that, that memorized it all within a month versus a guy that took three months, they're still, they're still equal brothers at the end of the day. You don't get a, there's not yes. a trophy or a pin or a, like a lapel pin you get for memorizing it under 30 days or something. Well, I mean, that's why I, I have always said masonry will be fine. We will always be there. We are an idea, we're a principle, we're a set of values, we're morality. And uh, I, w- I was talking to someone the other day about, uh, you know, are, are we in decline? Are we getting members back? It was kind of one of those dialogues. And I said, you know, I don't think there exists a better institution when it comes to tolerance, right? Like you have men from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, different professions, different political views, different beliefs and social, social uh, beliefs who found out that we can actually sit in a room together confront the problems that we need to confront together and come up with a mutual goal. I don't know anything that teaches that that much tolerance. And when you know you can't find it somewhere else, that is one of the reasons that we will never go away. If we could just teach that to others and explain that to others, we will be fine. And of course, it's I've often said masonry is a very personal journey, but I get to go on that journey with others. There's truly no other organization where you could take two men that that morning may have been shooting at each other and put them in a lodge room and that has to be disregarded, right? Like we, we may not agree. We may outside this lodge be enemies, but in here we're brothers. There's no other organization like that. Right. And you don't, and granted, we're talking historically. You don't see that necessarily today, but you do hear stories historically of like battlefield situations where not only that, but they would, you know, confer Masonic funerals on one another and things like that. You're, you're just, you're, tell me another organization. There's not one. There's, there's nothing like Freemasonry, period. Right. And, and when we convey that to others, again, that philosophy and that principle, it's impossible to extinguish that. So you kind of touched on this. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Where do you see our current course taking us within the next 10, 20, or 30 years? I believe we're going through a refinement. I believe there the argument that is out there is, oh, we're declining. No, we're on the upswing. I think it really depends on where you are. And I have seen lodges. I have visited lodges that need a lot of work. And I'm not just talking about uh, material work. They need a lot of work in general with, uh, with their members, whether it's showing up or, you know, doing good ritual. However, I also have a habit of comparing everything to my home lodge. I mean, we are, we are in a position now where we have more petitions than we can get committees on. We have more degrees that we need to plan that we 
haven't planned because of time management, like we have more work than we know what to do with. And seeing those polar opposites is both good and bad, right? You kind of think, okay, well, some lodges maybe have to close or perhaps they have to merge or uh, move their charter. And then in other, you know, in other lodges and other circumstances, you think, man, how could we be on the decline? And I think it's a little of both happening right now. But, uh, you know, I look around and I look at, at Victory Lodge, for example, there's a lot of young brothers in there, a lot of guys in their 20s, 30s. And I've said this many times in Lodge. You know, I look at these guys and I think that heart, that passion, that drive, that same desire to be there that I have as a as a 40 something year old if we can continue this right if we can stay on that course we're going to be just fine i think we have to going back to earlier i think we have to harness technology we can't be afraid of technology i get it uh, there is a group a, a specific age group that are not very good at working with that technology but that's that's where we're headed that's the now that's the future uh, masonry needs to to get a hold of that, and they are. They're doing a actually really good job of utilizing certain things like social media. I agree one hundred percent. Let me ask this as a follow up question. I, I don't think we can really argue. Granted, the, the the data isn't coming out anymore like it used to be, but I don't think we can really argue. If you look at the big picture, the numbers do seem to be declining. But unusually, in, in little isolated pools, you, you see the opposite. You see lodges doing like you're describing. They actually seem to be thriving. In fact, you know, if a lodge is doing as well as, as you're talking about, historically, they'd probably be looking at actually splitting. Why, why do you think we see this difference? Well, you have to kind of keep in mind, too, that everybody loves to compare numbers based on the World War II generation. Okay, well, the fact of the matter is, and, and this is fairly well documented, a lot of guys coming back from World War II joined the Lodge. I think, and don't quote me on this, you probably know better than me, but I think that was one of the, the spikes in membership was right after World War II. Well, unfortunately, that generation is dying off as we speak. So I think that explains a lot of those very sharp areas of decline but again you know i i've seen several lodges with very young faces new blood with that same passion and i there's going to be some uncomfortable things that happen in masonry i i'm not uh, totally ignorant to that i get it uh there's going to be some some stuff that has to happen that we probably don't like uh, as far as, yeah, splitting, merging, um, in some cases, perhaps charters going away, some lodges losing them. But again, I think what we're seeing right now is the fraternity being refined. And it has to happen. I, I'm, I'm not uh, opposed to it. Doesn't mean I like it. But uh, 
that's one of those conversations that, you know, brothers love to have. And I, I just, from what I have seen, I, I am not convinced that we're in real jeopardy. I'm not convinced either. And I, I agree. I, I feel as though we're going through a, it's an uncomfortable period. Don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, Freemasonry will be stronger because of it. Refinement doesn't happen overnight. Your lodge doesn't have to demise or merge with someone else overnight. We are victims of our own apathy. And if your right. lodge is in a situation, I mean, don't get me wrong. A lodge has history and it's unfortunate. I, I think I, I, I would like Freemasonry to be able to maintain its presence, you know, where, everywhere it is. But if your lodge isn't, if you're doing the same things you were doing last year and the year before, and you've been losing members this entire time, it's entirely your own fault for eventually demising or something. You had, in many cases, 10 or 15 years where you could see the trend and do something to change it. Well, and of course, the, the first step in fixing a problem is identifying that there is a problem. And even that by itself, if, if you break it down, is something we have a hard time with. Absolutely. No, that's not a problem. No, the roof is fine. No, no, we'll we'll take care of it next year. We'll take care of it the next round of officers. No, that no, don't worry about that. I prefer the semi-aggressive. There's the problem. How do we do it? How do we fix it? Let's do it now. And again, breaking breaking that down a little bit at a time, saying, okay, we can handle this right now. Let's plan to handle this later. Just saying that there's a problem. That is one of my biggest gripes is it's okay to be imperfect. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to have those problems. As long as you know they're there and you have the people involved who are willing to attack the problem. Let me put it this way. I have two young boys. And obviously it's their decision at one time. But, of course, I would love nothing more than to see them join the fraternity. What I would really hate to see is them inheriting cans that have been kicked down the road for 10, 20, 30 years. And I'm totally on board with what you're saying. If you see the problem, fix it. Fix it now. And it, it might be an uncomfortable conversation. We had a very uncomfortable conversation about dues at my lodge back in December. And I'm going to be bringing up endowments next month. And it's probably going to be an uncomfortable conversation. But we owe it to ourselves and future generations. Because really what we're doing, if we kick the can down the road, we're making the fraternity so dysfunctional and unappealing. Who's going to want to join it? Right. I do want to give a little shout out to uh, Chris Pistorio and Jason West for their Masonic funeral team and the effort they're making to improve that. I mean, that was uh, on a personal level, something that affected me a lot was hearing a story about a brother somewhere up in North Texas. Uh, There was, you know, his family and he requested a Masonic funeral service. And I think like three, three Masons showed up. I mean, what, what does that say to the family when here's a guy who put in all that time and energy and dedication to an organization where a couple of people, you know, has, have shown up. 
that's that's really embarrassing for me. So I give a lot of credit to the guys involved in the funeral stuff right now because that's something I've always seen as as one of our weaknesses. There have been those who before that really tried to take care of it and I'm not taking away from them at all. They they did an amazing job. But I recently attended Jody Sargent's uh funeral service and he's a very well-known uh, brother down here in the San Antonio area. I loved him dearly. And based on the service that was uh, conducted, it was clear, you know, he, he was loved by a lot of brothers. Uh, there were so many white aprons at his service. We almost couldn't fit uh, on the sides of the chapel, you know, when we went up to the casket. And, uh, you could hear family members and people in the audience in awe once everybody got to the front and you know we did our little our little service and walked up to the casket i mean you you heard people they're like oh my gosh that's a lot of brothers that's a lot of masons what do you think makes the most impact a hundred brothers or three guys and this is the last service we can offer to a brother it's the most important service we can offer to a brother and if you read you know, you know, the history, look at the old newspaper clippings. It was a big deal back then. They were, it was often a procession to the graveside and it was a lot of brothers. So we definitely owe it to them to do the best we can. I mean, as sad as I was, um, to be in that situation and to be there at a, at a burial service as down as I was, because again, I love Jody a lot in a way you were very proud. It made you feel really good to be up there with so many brothers to pay our respects to a brother we all loved and respected. And um, that was interesting. Absolutely. I would love to see something packed like that one day. Let me ask you about this is Finn. I I haven't watched all your content, but I've been trying to catch up on it. And man, I love the <laughs> stuff you're putting out there. Um, what, what, what really encouraged you to create this and what, what is the goal and purpose of it? So it was taking something like Facebook as, as sort of optics into my life. Um, I only recently really started talking about masonry, mostly because people would message me and say, oh, I, I saw this, or you, you were wearing this, or something, something like that. Uh, there's really two avenues. The, the Facebook page is more candid, just sort of my thoughts and uh, what's going on at that, at that time. Um, the YouTube channel is still pretty infantile. It's, uh, a while back, I did a sort of like a ghost hunt at a very cool lodge here in San Antonio, and I was joined by Lone Star Freemason, a couple other brothers of that lodge. And so it, I, I've kind of partitioned my YouTube channel as more of a full feature type experience where if you just watch me on Facebook, I, I'm typically just kind of doing random stuff, but really just an outlet. It was a way for me to motivate people in some regard and at the same time vent about other things and just kind of share, you know, as I've gotten older, And into my 40s, I've realized there's a part of me that wants to share my opinions and share my thoughts a lot more. 
And uh, those are the platforms to do it on. So it's so been fun. The, the stuff you put on with Facebook, yeah, it's very motivational. I really enjoy watching it. The YouTube, you sent me a video uh, like two days ago with the, with Nat, what's that, Natty? What's it called? Nat Washer. Nat Washer. Nat Washer Lodge. Nat Washer. And that was really cool. I enjoy stuff like that. Um, so we're going to go off on a little bit of tangent if that's okay with you. Um, not wholly Masonic, but this is something that's interesting to me. So sure. how many how many ghost hunts have you done? How many ghost hunts? That was probably the third time that I've been to a, quote, uh, haunted location. And um, there is there is some something going on there. I'm not sure how to describe that. I know uh, Brother West is is very intrigued by that and has quite a bit of experience. But it it was just a and we explain this in, in the full feature if, if people want to go and watch it, but it's not hostile. It's, it's not something uh, I've never heard a story, at least at Nat Washer about, you know, people you know, freaking out or, or feeling attacked or anything like that. But it's, there's a, a loneliness to that building. There's, there's a vibe. And when you feel it, you, you really feel it. Uh, there was a point, uh, in production where I was there by myself, I was actually, <laughs> I was waiting on brother West and just sort of walking around. There are some clips on my Facebook. Uh, this is Finn that were live, right? Like I was kind of simulcasting what was going on. And uh, I think I explain it best there. It's, it was very quiet, very somber. Uh, sadness, if that makes sense. It, it wasn't, evil or hostile it was just sad uh but i have been to some other places graveyards uh back home in california in the city of redlands there's a lot of haunted locations there and i've, I've been to the parks i've been to a couple of the mansions but not seriously not there to actually you know try to capture something and document something you um when you were i think it was you I, i'm i'm not sure who was actually holding the camera but when you're in the basement back at um, the lodge, what really stuck out to me is you're you're walking around and you you point the camera in this room. And I don't even know what room it was, but I'm looking at that and I'm like, I really don't like that room. <laughs> I just yes. don't like the, I don't like to look at it. And then someone made the comment and like, this is the room that makes you uncomfortable or something along those lines. And I was like, man, that's that's. That's really that's really cool to me. That's very interesting. So that that lodge itself is interesting because it, I didn't see like the whole lodge, right? But this was an old house at one point. Is that right? Correct. And it's um, you have to you have to know a little bit about the the history of the house as well to kind of appreciate this. But it's not uncommon for the lodge to be having a meeting and for sounds as if somebody's walking up the stairs or tapping on the door to be heard, right? It happens all the time where they're in the middle of a meeting and some, you know, someone will say, Oh, the, someone's at the door and the Tyler will, will be out there. And say, like, I didn't, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. Or um, when we were exploring the lodge room, I even, I even put in there, you know, we were hearing strange noises. Well, we didn't know this, right? We didn't know that that was a, a thing that happened to the brothers there where they would hear 
stuff coming from this layer of space. So I, I just by instinct went out with the camera and was looking around uh, that stairway. And I think I said, you know, you hear that it's, this is where it's coming from. Later, it was revealed to us that that was very common. You would hear footsteps, you would hear the creaking of the floorboards uh, as it ascended up to the lodge room. And that really sent shivers down my spine because it had happened to us while we were there. I said, I swear I'm hearing stuff. And uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. We, we just had, had to uh, do it at the right time and get the right permissions. And we tried to be as respectful as possible to everybody. And um, we'll probably do it again. We'll probably do a revisit video. Man, that sounds really cool. I did a few of those back when I was much younger. So I, uh, it always, it always gets my attention when I see someone doing that, especially in a, like an old, old lodge room like that. If you're ever in my area, Josh, there's a, I have to get permission, of course, but there's an old graveyard. Now, I don't know if it's haunted or not, but it'd still be a very interesting video, but there's an old graveyard. Uh, basically, it's a ghost town now, but there's an old graveyard there in one of the brothers from my lodge. Uh, he's actually, let me back up. He's not from my lodge, but he lives in the same town, so I, I talk to him a whole lot. He actually is one of the, it's not a caretaker, but he's on the board or committee that maintains this graveyard. And it had got pretty bad over, over a course of quite a while. And as they were cleaning it, he found a old stone chair. He's like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. Right. So he continues to clean and what he uncovers ultimately is you have a chair in this graveyard for the South and the West and the East. And there's a old stone altar in the middle. And so, wow. he, so he started looking at the history, you know, what's going on here. And so when this town was very young and, and still forming, the lodge that was there at the time would actually meet at that graveyard and, and, and do the degrees and everything until a church was built. And eventually they moved to the church, but knowing That's what awesome. I, it is and knowing what I know about some of the degrees, <laughs> I think that I think having them in a graveyard would be pretty <laughs> pretty memorable let's just say that this interview is all about you so i don't want to go into a whole lot about me but you did you did say that you have uh, watched some of my content in the past and some of it was controversial and i don't disagree with you right i i know often when i when i post these things there's probably gonna be a little bit controversy but what did you find controversial i particularly liked your video on why you left there was uh and i believe that's one of your most popular if not the most popular videos the most popular yes sir so yeah not hard to believe i don't see that as a confession i see it as a reason and a warning and I think that's why it affected me the most. I mean, I, I could tell, and I, I had sort of followed you on Facebook and uh, your other YouTube videos. And this, this guy clearly is intelligent. He has a lot to offer. Um, his reasons for basically leaving, taking a hiatus, whatever you want to call it, are absolutely legitimate. This is 
in a lot of ways, a message to brothers now on what not to do. And I can't believe that that's something people would dislike. People would say, you know, I'm going to vote down this thing. Oh, how dare he tell the truth? How dare he have an opinion on something? <laughs> you know, um, same with your video on lodges reopening. Are they ready to reopen based on what's been happening around us? I'm not sure why I, that's, quote, you know, controversial. I think those are valid points. Um, and again, perhaps warnings and messages to the brothers that are going back. Say, hey, there, here's some things to expect. And don't be shocked or surprised if this happens. So I really appreciate it. I, I like pretty much everything you have done. Um, and I, I have used that. I've used that as examples, and I've I've told other other brothers that I know have left, say, hey, you're you're not alone, and these are valid reasons to be disappointed, upset, uh, driven away. But how do we get you back? What is it going to take for you to to come back? Uh, I have one very close brother that hasn't been to lodge in years, and I've never got the full story. I don't. I don't want to press the issue. Um, he's one of the best Masons you could ever find and hasn't been to Lodge in years. Does that make sense? Yes, it The way does. he walks, the way he talks, the way he treats people. He's in good standing in all of, uh, all of the normal things. It's not like he demitted or just stopped paying dues. He is, he is current. He is active and in good standing. But he had an experience in his home lodge that convinced him, you know, I'm, I guess burned, I guess he felt sort of burned and wronged. Um, but I won't get too into that. He, he, uh, he will tell me the details of what have happened or what has happened when he is ready to. And I don't, I don't want to pry it from him. Yes. Yes. I will say that I was really surprised when when I because the first video you described you know why I left Freemasonry that was like one of my earliest videos and at the at the time I mean I still to an extent I just create content I feel as though I feel as though I grow by reaching out to you brothers and having these conversations but I also want to share it with others and when I created that video I remember it was really just a it was more for me than anything else I just felt like I needed to get that out there and of course, like I say, it's a controversial video and it's on YouTube. So you get all kinds of people, right? But what really surprised me was the amount of brothers that either would reach out to me, um, you know, they find my Facebook page or reach out or leave a comment. And I learned very quickly that my situ my experience was not isolated. You know, th this happens often. And I suppose we could even tie this back to what we were saying earlier about the, the inner apprentices and everything. Sure. The inner apprentice degree may serve as a, as a filter or, or for whatever reason, the retention is low, but I think the reason overall, if you look broadly, because you lose a lot of master masons too, even after they go through all the work and all of a sudden they just disappear. I, I feel as though a lot of people are falling through the cracks because of reasons like that as well. And yes. And for whatever reason, it, it may be our own fault. Well, frankly, it is because 
either either we're doing a bait and switch, you know, we're promising one thing, delivering something else, or we're not doing a we're not doing our due diligence when we're investigating these petitioners because what they're expecting might be totally unrealistic or something that they would find at another lodge. And we have to we have to let go of our ego enough to understand what our lodge is about. And if someone's looking for something, if someone really wants to do fundraising and they just really want to be a, a Mason, there may be another lodge that does that very well. Or if they really want like this deep experience, there's probably another lodge that does that really well. We have to be honest with ourselves and know what we deliver and what everyone else delivers because what, what might cause us to lose a brother at this lodge may be exactly what he's looking for over there. Yeah, very well said. Uh, I agree 100%. And, and balancing off what I was saying earlier about two different conversations, I think EA is not coming back versus dues-paying members not coming back are two different problems. They may share a lot of similarities. It may be promises unmet, expectations not met. There, there's a lot of... Uh, ways to quantify why they aren't being there at, at the end of the day. But again, the, the hardest part of that is just admitting there's a problem. There seems to me that there is indeed a resistance to say, hey, it may be if we changed this or we changed that or let's let's adapt to this or adapt to that without changing the fundamentals. I'm just suggesting Let's not take the path of, well, it's always been done this way. Is is a fight starter in some circles. They just don't want to hear it and don't want to discuss it, don't even really want to acknowledge it. And that's you know, that's that's my opinion. But what's really unfortunate and may also even be, well, I'm sure it probably is a reason for many logistics in decline right now. Is, is exactly what you're talking about in that we would rather we would rather adopt a victim mentality than acknowledge our shortcomings and address them head on. And I mean, I know you're on Facebook groups and uh, I know you're on, you know, Mesa's of Texas and everything. And there was a conversation not long ago about, you know, why we're we losing members and a lot of brothers adopted this victim mentality. It's, 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 something else's fault that we're losing members. It could be society or, or, or kids being lazy or the internet or video games. And that may be to an extent, right? But we can't control that. We have no control over that. Well, what we do know, or what we should know, and I think you know this based off what you described about seeing young men in the lodge. Young men are interested in fraternity we do offer something we're still very relevant but if we if we're not offering that then we're not going to keep them we're not going to retain them and so we we have to be real about why we're losing people and and we can change that's the beauty of it there's no death sentence for freemasonry but and i also agree with you that i i think freemasonry will survive but if we as a whole continue to adopt this victim mentality then then 
it's going to do more harm than good in the long run. Right. hundred percent. Josh, tell me if someone wants to get a hold of you on Facebook or YouTube, you know, if they want to connect with you through this is Finn, what's the best way to do that? How can they find you? You can find me on Facebook at this is Finn. Uh, my messenger is set up. So shoot me a message, ask questions. I like to interact with the audience quite a bit. So you can find me there, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I believe you can connect with me there through Google. Okay. Well, Joshua Finn, I sure appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with me today. I think this has been a fantastic interview. I hope we can have another conversation sometime in the near future. Or better yet, we can sit in the lodge together. But in the meantime, you take care, all right? You too, brother. It was great being here. Thank you very much. Joshua Finley, everybody. That was a fantastic interview. We covered so many things. I feel as though I can't do it justice with the wrap-up. Because as much as I'd love to hit every point we talked about, I also feel as though that's probably going into too much debt. So what I do want to look at is we talked about commander uniforms. And while I am a member of commandry, the typical commander uniform has really held me back from participating too actively. And I know that's not a very good reason. I typically feel as though I need to be involved and support anything I'm a member of. And I'm actually in the process of looking into reaching back out to my local commandery and getting involved again. But the black suit and chapeau are just a huge turnoff for me. I'm not so petty now that I won't be involved because of it, but there was a point where it was definitely a huge turnoff to that whole organization for me. I still would prefer a cap and mantle if I could find a commandery that has adopted that. But what I would really prefer more than anything, sometimes simple is best. I really love those old black triangular aprons that, that they used to wear in the commandery. It's one of those with a nice suit. I'm telling you, that would I would be all over that. I think that would be fantastic. Unfortunately, typically, there was a skull featured on the front of these black aprons. And you know there are no skulls in Freemasonry, right? So you can't have anything that might scare anybody away. So those will probably never come back. But I really love the aesthetic of those. And frankly, I think the symbolism of the skull is pretty significant and something we shouldn't shy away from. But that's a whole other conversation. In fact, may have that conversation next week. We also talked about the importance of our degrees, as well as rites of passage in Freemasonry. I'm including these both together because I feel as though they're so closely intertwined. You can't really talk about one without addressing the other at the same time. The Masonic degrees are meant to incite a change in a man. And it's not an overnight change. It takes time. And the reason for this is because the degrees themselves are rites of passage. I'm not going to go into detail about the nuts and bolts of rites of passages. I'll include a link in my show notes if you want to see another YouTube video or another podcast where I actually address rites of passage themselves. But the point is, every degree is a rite of passage. And rites of passage are designed to create change. Every brother will only get one inner apprentice degree, one fellow craft, or one master master's degree in his life. Now, he might see multiple others, but there's only one of each that will be his degree. It's important that that degree be his degree at his night. And what I mean by that is you shouldn't do more than one person a night. Make a significant event for that person. 
for that brother so that everyone is devoted to him. Everyone's efforts that evening are devoted to giving him the best experience that he can receive. We also talked about focusing on existing members. And this is something that I spoke about previously in another podcast very recently. We are obligated to the brothers of our lodge. We should put them first in regards to finding what they would find value in in the lodge. Now, we certainly should try to attract new members. I'm not saying that, that we need to throw the, the baby out with the, with the bathwater on this. However, we can't spend all of our efforts on getting new members when we have more than half our members in most lodges that are being inactive. Now, granted, there's some things you can't help. Some brothers are too old to attend or they just don't want to attend because of their age. Some brothers have moved away, but you're still going to find a large amount of brothers that are still living locally. And for whatever reason, they lost interest in, in attending lodge. And we need to devote more than half of our effort finding out what's going on and bringing them back. Josh also hit on the entered apprentice degree being a filter. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. The entered apprentice degree, if you compare it side by side with the other degrees, has a lot more content to it. It's a lot more difficult not just because of the sheer amount of content you have to learn, but it's also the first degree that you're learning the work. Everything else will build off what you learned in an apprentice degree, but it's a steep cliff going from a mister to mason and turning in that inner apprentice work because there's just so much to it. A lot of people will get disheartened and lose interest. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that there is so much inner apprentice work. We also talked about apathy and Freemasonry and addressing problems head on. There's no nice way to say it. So I'll just be frank with everybody. Every lodge currently has problems, big or small. There, there are problems. There's no perfect lodge. Every lodge has some problems. 95% of those problems are the result of older generations. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. It could be, I'm talking brothers for their probably been long past, but they kicked the can down the road. They didn't either think it was serious or they thought that someone else could handle it a few years later. And it just continuously gets kicked down the road. It's passed on from generation to generation. I don't want my children because I hope that they'll become Masons. I don't want them to inherit the problems that my generation could have addressed. Because every generation that inherits a problem, it is a worse problem than it was for the previous generation. It's only going to grow in significance. Things will only get worse. When we turn a blind eye to issues now, even if they're small, when you look back at them later, they're much bigger and much more problematic and more difficult to fix. We need to address our problems head on. We also talked about attracting and retaining members. And I think if we go back to the idea of making every event special, that will have a huge impact on both attraction and retention. We talk about taking good men and making them better, but then when we actually get into the quarries to do work, it's just business meetings. Our stated meetings need to be special. And even if you can't find a special guest speaker or a good presentation for every meeting, every other meeting, would be good as often as you can. There needs to be good food. We need to set the proper atmosphere for our meetings, both stated and called, particularly 
when it comes to our degrees. This also goes back to what I said about making our degrees special. Make degrees special for the candidates. Make it a worthwhile experience to go see. Even if you have already seen 100 interdependence degrees or 100 Master Mason degrees, make it worthwhile. Give brothers a reason to come visit your lodge to see how you do things. We've all seen lodges that do excellent work. And we've all been to degrees that we would love to come and watch another degree at that lodge. What made that special? And why can't you implement it at your lodge? Just some food for thought. Finally, and you all know it's coming. If you enjoyed this content or anything else that I posted, be it this podcast, YouTube channel, or my blog, please check out my Patreon or consider buying me a coffee at the links below, again, in the show notes. Every dollar contributed to Masonic Improvement will allow me to raise the bar in some way. And I believe in quality, as you can tell if you've been listening to me for a while. So anything that helps me increase the quality of my podcast or my YouTube channels or the blog posts that I write will go, will be very much appreciated. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you again for watching or listening and you take care.